ask you please to pray with me. Father in heaven, now, as we come to this great gift that you've given to us, uh, this book that is uh, from you, breathed out by you, inspired, expired by your Holy Spirit through these people, uh, this passage, through this man, Paul. And so we pray, Father, that you would help us as we listen to it, as we think about it. Um, Father, cause our minds to be captivated by that which is true. Um, so our lives follow suit. This we pray, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Second Timothy in chapter 2, please. I want to read verses 14 through 26. Second um, Timothy chapter 2, please. Hear the word of God. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which, was, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And now at a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself by by what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. But kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. I want to take up today, if God will help me, really just this portion begins in verse 19 and probably uh, make it through verse 22 only. This verse 19, I want to ask the question first, why did Paul say that? In other words, why did Paul say, but God's firm foundation stands bearing his seal. The Lord knows those who are his and that everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, why in this particular passage, why at that moment in time did Paul say, here's what I'm going to write. I want them to know this. Why why does he put that statement there? How is that helpful to Timothy? How is that helpful to the church in Ephesus? How is that helpful to us? That's that's really the question. Now remember the context. Remember what what, what Paul is doing here. He's writing a letter to this young man, Timothy. Timothy's probably in his late 30s. We call him a young man, late 30s. 
uh, might be early 40s, but probably late, late 30s. Um, and Paul recognizes that he's young, and so he's writing to this, this, this young pastor, if you will, um, and, and he's writing to him in this second letter to, to call Timothy, to say, Timothy, I want you to come and visit me in Rome, and because I'm in prison in Rome, I want you to come to Rome and share in my sufferings. So on the one hand, Paul is giving Timothy courage to come, so he reminds him, you remember, as this chapter began to be strengthened in this, by the grace that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he gives him courage to come by saying there's strength here. You'll be strengthened. So you'll be able to come into this setting, into this situation of, of suffering, of persecution even. Uh, but then he also tells him to make preparation for his coming. He says, I want you to take this truth, this gospel that you have, and I want you to entrust it to faithful men. And, and now here in this context, we begin with verse 14. He's reminding Timothy that there's still difficulties in the church in Ephesus. There are still those who are teaching that which isn't true. And, and so the, the antidote to teaching that which isn't true, obviously, is teaching that which is true. So you need to rightly handle the scripture. So he's got them all the way to that point, you see. He's saying, I want you to, to make certain that you and yours, you and those with whom you've entrusted this gospel, are rightly handling this scripture. Uh, so you're, you're, you're not going where it doesn't go, and, and, and you're not squabbling about little bits and pieces, but you have the guts of it, you have the heart of it, you're keeping the main thing the main thing, and so you're not getting off track here. That's what it means to rightly handle this word of truth. So I want you to stay in this, Timothy. But, but then he makes this statement after he says there are some upsetting the truth of people in the church in Ephesus. Verse 19, he says, but, so he's saying, this is false teaching, however... You need to know this, Timothy. God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. You see what Paul's doing here for Timothy and doing for us. He's saying, listen, don't, don't worry. There's hope here. This really is going to work. That what God has begun, God will bring to completion. It really, really is going to work. There is a firm foundation, and it's God's firm foundation. He said it, and amazingly so, this firm foundation, most certainly, is Christ. We know that we build upon him, for instance, as uh, Paul writes to the church uh, in, in Corinth. He, he speaks of, of, of this, this, this firm foundation. Paul is saying about himself, he says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. That is, that is Jesus is the, the foundation of all of this. Remember, there was a day in the life of Jesus when he was with his disciples. And he said to them, who do men say that I am? They gave a number of responses, no doubt, all true. That is to say, true in the sense that that's what people were saying, uh, the Jesus, who Jesus was. And, 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 and Jesus then said rather pointedly, but, but, but who do you say that I am? You remember Peter's response? He says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Right? And you remember Jesus' response that he said, well, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. But my father in heaven revealed this to you. But, but Peter, I want you to know this, that upon this rock I will build my church. Now, we can discuss and debate and quibble about what that means, exactly what this rock is and all of that. But clearly, at least it's this, 
that the, the foundation of everything, the foundation of his church, the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ is Christ himself. And this, this, this truth that he indeed is the son of the living God. And so this foundation of Jesus in the context of the life of the church is firm. In fact, Jesus went on to say this. He says, don't worry, nothing can come against you. Not even the gates of hell. The gates of hell can't destroy this, can't come against this. Right? The foundation is firm. So, so saying to Timothy and tell, saying to us is, is, is I know it can look grim because the enemies can, be, can, 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 can seem very strong. They're, they're very bright and they're perverse persuasive and all of that but but still don't worry timothy the the foundation is firm because the foundation is christ but but you see in christ this foundation is actually as well the church you remember when we went through first timothy not too long ago first timothy in chapter 3 verse 15 this 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 verse was the theme of that letter. Paul says to them, he's going to come to Timothy and visit him soon, but he says, if I delay, I'm writing these things to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. That is, the church is actually the support of the truth. We've been given this truth as the church. We're stewards of this truth. And so, so, so it's here, and he says, it's firmly entrenched, really, in my, God would say, church. It's really his. And we say, is it really? And he says, yes, and here's why. Because my seal is upon it. You see, I own it. When a seal is on something, it's a seal of ownership. He says, yes, I really own this. If you, get, if you see the president's seal, you say, this is from the president. This is really true. This is really right. All that's here belongs to him. I have the presidential seal on that. And so this is the seal of God. He says, I have my seal on my church, on this truth. It really is mine. And it's a two-folded seal. The first fold of the first part of this seal is that I know those who are mine. I really do. I know those who are mine. Those who are really my church. I know that. So Timothy, don't think I'm confused by this. I get it. I understand. I know there's false teachers, but don't worry. I know those who are mine. Now, how does he know that? How does God know those who are really his? Well, he's omniscient. That helps. He knows the hearts of people, right? He knows the past and present and future. He knows, as he put it, as we find it in the book of Revelation, whose names are in, already, the Lamb's book of life. So he knows all that. He's omniscient, but it is deeper than that. He knows those who are his because he chose them to be his. We mentioned this. It came up before in chapter 2, verse 10, where Paul says, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that is, those whom God has chosen. Jesus speaks of the elect when he talks about coming again in Matthew chapter 24. He speaks of gathering the elect. When he spoke to his disciples, he said, Now remember, you didn't choose me, but I, I chose you. The apostle Paul, whose own guts would know this 
grace of God to choose him, to call him? How else could Paul, this one who had been Saul of Tarsus, persecutor of the church, how could he ever explain why it is that he would believe? I mean, why did he get such special attention? Why, why did God reveal himself, Jesus did, in such a dramatic way even when he was on this road to Damascus to go and to persecute other believers in Jesus? He had no intention of believing in Jesus, no intention of following after Jesus. But Jesus comes to him in this very dramatic way. Yes, to call him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. But, 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 but why? Why him? And I think Paul would say, I don't know, I guess because I'm a greater sinner than all the rest. And so therefore, by saving me, Jesus could show that he could save anybody. At least that's the explanation he gave to Timothy in the first letter. How else could he explain it? How else could Paul explain it other than God did a work in me, to me, for me? Why he didn't do that to everybody? He didn't, but why he didn't do that for everybody? I don't think Paul would have an explanation. At least he doesn't give one for us. In Romans 9, when he begins to deal with that, he, he says, well, in a sense, don't ask that question. You're the clay. You're not the potter. So he kind of leaves it there. As should we. But he says, here it is, you see. He, he knows those who it is because he's the one in and behind all of this. And so he does indeed know all those who are his. We read this morning already from a couple of passages uh, in the Gospel of John. John chapter 6, for instance. Uh, we read of this Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. He says, here it is. He says, you know, the Father knows those who are his. Why? Because he gave them to me. He, he knows them from the very beginning. And then in verse 44 of this same chapter, John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so we see this drawing by the Father of those who are his. And I'll raise him up on the last day. It's written in the prophets. And they'll, be, they'll all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He is seen. He is seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And then in John chapter 10, Again, this great passage of this great or good shepherd as Jesus calls himself. And of course, when he refers to himself as the good shepherd, bells and whistles should go off in everybody's heads. Who would know anything about the Old Testament, anything about the Hebrew scriptures to say, oh my goodness, he's saying that he's God because the Lord is my shepherd. And now Jesus says, yes, I know. And I am he. And I'm the good, I'm the good shepherd. And I come to lay my life down for my sheep, notice how he puts it, John 10, 14. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. He says, I know them, you see. It's, it's, I know those who are mine. And I've given myself, if you will, for them. And then in verse 25 of John 10, Jesus answered them, I told you. And you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but, but you do not believe. So he's saying this to those who are unbelievers, these Pharisees who are quizzing him. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them 
and they follow me. And, and everyone would get the image. Everybody knew who shepherds were. Everybody knew that a, know, would know that a shepherd of sheep would be able to, 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 to know the very names of his sheep. The shepherds in those days named their sheep. And, and they would call their sheep by name. And the sheep would come because they would know the shepherd's voice. That was their protection. That was their help to, to, to be known by the shepherd. And, and, and so he says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. And... Uh, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They'll never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given uh, them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. But you see, there's something in this passage that sort of, at least for me, takes my breath away. Because I realize that I believe because I am a sheep. It isn't that I am a sheep because I believe. The sheepness comes before believing because he's made me to be his own. Notice how Jesus puts it. He says, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. He doesn't say, you are not among my sheep because you do not believe. And again, there's mystery here. It takes my breath away, as I said. But, but, but still, it's true. And so God really says, yes, I really do know those who are, those who are mine, and they're secure in me. No one, nothing can snatch them out of my hands. So you see, the first point to Timothy and to us is that, yes, of course, God knows those who are his. So, so while this is significant, while this is important, while this is dangerous, while, while there could be suffering, while there are false teachers, while we live in the midst of all of that, never forget this, that God is sovereign, God is in control, God gets it, God knows all this. He knows those who are his. So keep plowing your way through. Nothing that we do is wasted Everything is significant and important. That's why Paul could say in verse 10 of chapter 2, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. See, Paul knew because there were sheep out there who would hear the voice of the shepherd and believe and follow, if you will, that what he was doing was of great significance and couldn't fail so he would keep after it keep doing it even if it brought suffering we say oh this must be part of it this must be the way in which the voice gets out this must be the way through which these people hear and so he would continue to see even in the midst of suffering why because he knew it wouldn't be wasted it knew it wasn't for nothing he knew that there were sheep out there and the shepherd's voice would be heard and they would follow him and so he continued after and Timothy was to do the same we're to do the same we're to take great comfort not only for ourselves but for the work that's before us that God really does know those who are his you say that's all well and good but how do we know he says well all right that's the other side of the seal on one hand I know those who are mine and then on the other side, he says, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. He says, all right. In the invisible realm, if you will, God says, I know those who are mine. I know them. I've known them since the found, before the foundations of the world. I've known them. How do we know them? We said there are those who name 
the name of the Lord, who, who take the name of the Lord upon themselves. No doubt, perhaps even the false teachers did that. So that's all well and good. But those who take my name should be branded by this as well, that they should be the ones who depart from iniquity, depart from this false teaching and live in such a way that shows that yes, they belong to me. Of course, that doesn't mean that they live perfectly. It doesn't mean that at all. It means that they they really get the fact that they do belong to God. We know that we live, and we'll get into this in a moment, this life of repentance and faith, this life of turning away from sin, this life of confession. That's why we say when we come together on Sundays, we're rehearsing our lives. The time that we spend together on Sunday mornings, in part, is this rehearsal of our lives, how we are to live every day, all the time, recognizing the holiness of God, recognizing our unholiness, recognizing there's forgiveness uh, for sins because of Jesus, receiving that forgiveness, hearing from Him, and going on. You see, that's that's just the very pattern of life. So we, we do that together every Sunday to make sure we don't forget it, right? That's the way it is to be as we, as we come together. So it isn't perfect, but, but there is this fleeing, he says, really, from iniquity. You see, Old Covenant, let's think like Old Testament people here for a minute. Old Covenant, taking the name of the Lord. When did that happen? Well, in ancient Israel, it happened in circumcision. It happened when boys were born. We could see the community, that child, the parents as well, taking on the name of the Lord, saying, we belong as a community of people to the Lord. His name is upon us. You remember the great benediction that the, the priests of Aaron were to pronounce upon the people. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and all of that. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In Numbers chapter 6, God is saying to the priest, he says, pronounce this on the people so that my name may be upon them. You see, that they may belong to, they may take this identity. They're Yahweh people, they're God people. English, they're Jehovah people, right? They belong to me, and, and that is to be their that is to be their identity, this sense of circumcision. They they belong to me, that there's a righteousness that's apart from law, even that, that Abraham knew it came by way of of faith. Well, all right, that's great. They have this outward sign. But but God would say this outward sign is to produce something in them, if you will, is to mean something. And so, so it's contrasted by Moses like this, two senses. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, uh, Moses writes, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. In other words, there's this work of God, of, we would call it in the New Testament, of being born again, given new life. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that... Very important. Here's why he does that. So that, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. So we have this outward taking the name as a community, taking the name of the Lord upon ourselves, our identity. 
But you see, that only has meaning to the degree that God works this in our hearts. And that is evidenced by changed people. That is evidenced by a people who love God, you see, as he puts it with all their heart and soul, so that they may live. So then what do you think would be the commandment of Moses to the people after knowing that? Well, the commandment is this. He actually gives it before, some chapters before in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16. He says then, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. You see, here's the emphasis. You have the outward sign. It only has meaning if God has worked. And if God has worked, then this will make sense to you. This will make sense to you to, to get on with it. Circumcise your hearts, you see. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Now, in the New Covenant, this sign of baptism. It's where we take, if you will, in a very formal way, we take the name of the Lord. We name the name of the Lord. So if we bring a, an infant, as the, as the Old Testament uh, saints would do, as they brought their sons, we bring our children. Uh, we're naming the name of the Lord. We're taking this identity, our identity, and now this family identity, this identity on our children. In a sense, they're getting, if you will, the name of the Lord. If someone who hasn't been baptized comes in profession of faith, they're naming the name of the Lord, if you will. And all that is great in this sign of cleansing that says there's cleansing through faith in Jesus and all of that. That's great, you see. But how do we know? He says, oh, here's how we know. Those who take the name of the Lord will depart from iniquity. They'll run away from all that isn't true to all that, that is true. There, there, there'll be this cleansing that we see the outward symbol of it, this cleansing will penetrate it. It'll, 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 it'll show itself into their very lives. So, so Paul gives an illustration. And what he's trying to illustrate in this illustration is that those who name the name of the Lord, those who are known by the Lord, will be ones who then depart from iniquity. That is, cleanse themselves, are cleansed, turn away from, are cleansed so that then they can be useful to the master. Notice verse 20. It says, now in a great house. So he's talking about small houses and big houses. When he says great house, he's the house of rich people. Okay? He says, now in a great house. There are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. In other words, there are some vessels in a house, the good silver, right? The good china, that show the glory of the master. You walk in and you go, wow, look at that. The guy who owns this house, the woman who owns it, they must really be great. Look at this, right? And then there's the utensils you don't see, right? Now, this would be more vivid in their culture because some of the vessels that you don't see would take out, well, trash. I won't, human trash. Right? They didn't have all the facilities that we have today. And so there were some for dishonorable use that nobody really saw, right? And there's honorable use. Okay, I don't need to say any more about that. My wife's not even here, and I think I got away with that. All right, <laughs> not even being crude. 
But, but you, get the, you get the picture. And so there's honorable use and dishonorable use here. You see, it's, 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 it's that kind of a contrast here. And so you get this sense that he's saying, wait a minute, I think I'm getting this, Paul. Those who follow the false teachers. Oh. Those, those who follow the true. Oh, and I, I see. I see it now. So Paul is saying here, if you want to be useful, depart from iniquity. I mean, that, that's what this is really driving out. Notice how he puts it, verse 21. He says, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, that is, from those who are teaching that which is false, he'll be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, technically sanctified. You see, sanctified. That's what we mean by that word, set apart as holy. Now, when we talk about this word sanctified, being holy, we're talking in a very, if we talk about it in a very generic way, we simply mean set apart for a use to which it is intended. For instance, if you have a pencil, you sanctify your pencil by writing. That's what a pencil is for. So if you want to, to really make holy a pencil, you take it and you write with it. Uh, if you uh, want to sanctify a, a broom, you sweep with it, right? So, so it's what it's for. A person who is sanctified then is sanctified in such a way as to reflect God, the very image of God, you see. We are made for that. That's who we are. And, 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 and so, so, so that's our most usefulness is to be useful, if you will, to God. That is to be godly. So depart from iniquity. So he says, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he'll be a vessel for, a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready, and I believe that word ready contains this expression as well, ready and eager, ready for every good work. See, that's why we've been saved, you see. We've been saved from sin, not to continue in sin. We haven't been saved by good works, but if you will, for them. You know, the passage in Ephesians in chapter 2, which expresses as clearly, if you will, uh, that we're saved by grace and not our works, verse 8 of Ephesians 2. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So we can't boast in anything we've done. But then notice this, verse 10. He says, for, the reason we can't boast in our own works, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so he says, listen, we've been saved so that we can live like this. So get on with it. When Paul writes to Titus, uh, another uh, young pastor, he writes to him in Titus chapter 3, verse 1. He says, remind them, that is the people in your congregation, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. And then in verse 8, he says, this saying is trustworthy, and I want to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Verse 14, 
and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help uh, cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. We're, we're, we're to be about these things, these things of godliness, and to be about them. And, and he uses this expression of cleanse yourself. You say, well, wait a minute. How can I cleanse myself? Well, on the one hand, we can't. On the one hand, we realize that we are cleansed by Jesus. Through faith in him, we're cleansed. That is, forgiven our sins, we're cleansed. All right, we have that concept. He says, now, in your experience, as you apply this, get rid of all the dirt in your life. You've been forgiven. You've been cleansed. Now start living as a cleansed person. Well, how do we do that? go back to this. We go back to repentance and faith. We do that by turning away from sin and turning towards that which is of God. The scripture is replete with these little expressions like take off the old self and put on the new self. And we say that sounds like work. Well it is. At least in the sense that it takes great energy says, crucify the flesh. And we say, that sounds painful. And it is. Deny yourself. Oh, and follow Christ. Here's how he puts it to Timothy, verse 22. He says, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And so I read that and go, well, I'm home free. I'm no longer youthful. But you see, these sins of the youth have a tendency to still kind of attach. There are sins at any age, you see. So Timothy being young is being very specific to him. And there are some sins of youth that that I think uh, sometimes more obvious. The older we get, the better we get at this sort of thing. And uh, when you're young, there's sort of out there. But when you're older, you sort of know how to do these. Our friend Jerry Bridges wrote that book called Respectable Sins. And, and if you know Jerry, and most of you do, you know that he's always apologizing for that title because he doesn't want to be confused. He doesn't want anybody to think that there are some sins that are respectable. So when he announces that title, he says, no, 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 no. What I mean by that is, you see, because he wants to make sure that none of them are respectable. But what he means by that is there's some we've become so accustomed to, so good at, that you can't even tell we're doing them when we're doing that. And then when we're doing them, nobody notices because we're all doing them. Just in the midst of it. So let's be careful about this. You should read that book. One night I was having, Karen and I were having dinner with Jerry and Jane. And uh, my daughter Sarah called. On, on, and I saw it on my phone, so I knew it was Sarah. And I said, well, I better get this. So I got it with Sarah. And I said, I can't talk. I'm having dinner with Jerry Bridges. And she said, let me talk to him. You know, my Sarah, she got on the phone and Jerry went, "Uh uh-huh, oh, yes. Hmm. Gives me back the phone. I said, what did you say? She said, I'm reading his book, Respectable Sins, and I told him he's ruining my life. (laughs) (laughs) But you see, it isn't that. It says flee from these, these sins, obvious and not so 
so obvious. You know, when we think of the sins of the youth, sometimes we think of sexual passion, and no doubt Paul would have had this here for this young man because he told him in the first letter, he said, remember, when you, when you talk to the younger women, treat them as sisters with purity. So there's something there. Certainly we know that sexual sin, sexual passion uh, wreaks havoc. Sexual sin does in our lives, even in our own culture, no matter how much we want to deny the impact of sexual sin and even deny that there is anything called sexual sin in our con- in our culture we see the effects of it all the time in children in families you see it there isn't any way to get around it and so he's telling Timothy telling all of us flee this and this little word flee means Run away from, escape, run away as fast as you can. The Greek, we, from this particular expression in Greek, we get our word fugitive. In other words, keep running from it. Keep running from Don't ever get caught by this. Keep running from these sins. Don't ever become, run for your life. Don't negotiate with them. Don't stop and talk, right? But get out of there. Keep, keep running from them. Or this sense of impatience. I always find it amazing, but it's simply true that the younger we are, often the most impatient we are. When we have the most time. But yet we want it now. And so we find that when we're young, we we discount the future so much. We want it right now. And, And you know all the sort of practical issues that that comes with debt and other kinds of things in in life. I'm not sure if you would have told me 22 years ago it would take 22 years to build all that we've built. I might have said, well, maybe I don't have that time. (laughs) You see. He says, make make sure that you're not impatient, Timothy, especially in the context of ministry. Be patient with yourself. Be patient with people. They'll come around. A young pastor called me the other day and he said, so what do you do when people leave your church? And I said, uh, Wait. Wait. They may well return. Just wait. Don't be angry. Don't be upset with them. You may want to call them and see what's up. But wait. Just wait. Be patient. So what about people who, who don't get this? He mentioned a few pet doctrines that he would love for people to get in his church. I said, wait. <laughs> Keep teaching. Keep talking. Be gentle and kind and all that. I read him the passage that I'm not going to get to today at the end of this chapter. Be patient. They're impatient. Lead to great trouble. Never forget reading in a novel by Tom Wolfe. Oh, I can't remember the title. But main character in the movie was a, in the book, was a... Uh, very successful man, self-made man. He, he, was, he was quite the guy in every way, shape, or form. Very successful in business. And he uh, ended up, after having been married about 25 years or so, divorcing his wife and marrying this trophy wife. He was in his 50s and she was in her 20s and she was beautiful and could put on great parties and everybody was impressed. And then in his mid-50s, his life began to fall apart and his business falling apart 
And he said he was laying there in bed and he looked at this trophy wife and, and all he longed for was his first wife because she knew him. But yet he threw that all away. So he goes to visit her, of course. She's remarried. There's one nothing to do with him. And I can still feel what I felt when I read the pages of him walking away from her house saying, there's no one here for me. Again, just the sins of our youth. To walk away from that which is good, but we can't see the good in it. To walk away from that which is good. And Paul is saying to Timothy, don't, don't, don't do that. Build roots, you see. Roots in God, roots in people. Flee these youthful passions of, of impatience and of arrogance and so forth. And he says, here's what you need to do. You need to pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, and, and do that along with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. That is to say, don't do this alone. You can't do this alone. You've you got to have people around you. You've got to have those who, who are like-minded. So, so get with those people who desire to pursue these things and, and to know God. And, and so do it. Do it, he says, with them. And so he says, you're to pursue righteousness. That is, that which is right. Pursue it. Pursue it together. You remember that? Beatitude, that part of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they'll be filled. You go, what would cause a person to hunger and thirst after righteousness? Uh, What causes a person to hunger and thirst after righteousness is the realization that all our misery is the result of unrighteousness. You see, that person who hungers and thirsts after righteousness starts out that person who's poor in spirit. Jesus begins all that by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those people who are poor in spirit realize they have nothing. They're not right at all in the presence of God. And then they mourn over that. And then they say, yeah, I see what I need. What I need, what I need here is Righteousness. And so we come to Christ, the righteous one who gives us righteousness. But but then we even say, now I want to live this righteousness out. I remember one time seeing this fountain. There's all the fountains like this all over the place, this particular one. It's one of these fountains where, where water, of course, was gushing up over this figurine and then it would come down, you know, over it wash over this figurine then somehow because there was a pump on the inside it would get sucked up into this this big image and out at the mouth you, see, you can just picture that boom and I go that's it isn't it we're covered with the righteousness of Christ but then you know we want to suck it up this righteousness of Christ so that it comes out and that's that's sort of the, the sense of our lives and so he says pursue this righteousness when he says pursue he says hunt after it don't ever stop keep pursuing this hunt after it Make sure you get it. Don't be still anything else satisfy you. But, but, but hunt after this and, and hunt after faith and faithfulness, loyalty to God and to, to people. Hunt after this faithfulness. Hunt after love. Love for God, love for peace. And to do this with people. I know this isn't the first Sunday of the month when we normally have communion, but I was sitting this week Early in the week, actually Tuesday morning, late Tuesday morning, and I was thinking, and when we met with the worship team, this was confirmed, and I 
Someone said, you know, we ought to have communion this week. And I said, yes. And here's why. Not that we need a reason. But here's why on this particular morning, I had this sense of all of us naming the name of Christ and fleeing iniquity. I thought, what would that look like? And I said, you know what it looks like? It looks like everybody's standing up and coming to the table of the Lord. Cleansed, cleansing, repentance, faith, leaving, grabbing hold of. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread after giving thanks. He gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Same way he took the cup. After giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And you see, when we come to this table, what are we doing? What are we remembering the name of Christ? What does that mean? Well, at least this. It means that we're taking his name. This is who we are. We're the people of Christ. We take his name. So the great thing, and you can do this various ways, churches do this all kinds of ways, but I, I really do like the fact that we get up and come. Don't have to do it that way, but there's something good about that, I think. And there's a sense in which as we get up to come, we're saying, I want to flee, I want to run from, I want to put all that behind. I want to run from, and I want to come. And so what we're saying when we're doing this, and remembering Jesus, Yes, cleansing in him. Now, I leave all this behind sin and come to this table and say, yes. I want to flee sin. I want to pursue righteousness. I want to pursue faith. I want to pursue love. I want to pursue peace. And we'll be doing that with others who claim the name of Christ as well. So, Join together with God. Join together with each other. You see, as a company of people identified by his name, we're saying, yes. Yes. God knows those who are his. Those who name the name of the Lord shall, must, will depart from iniquity. Let's pray. Father in heaven, table set before us. I pray you take this bread, this juice, set it apart for us, that we might in all of this remember Jesus, declare his death that brings forgiveness of sins, so that as we come, in even our coming, what we're declaring is, yes, I leave sin behind, I come to Christ, I flee, I pursue I take, I eat. Father, that we may know that Christ is as close to us as this bread and juice, as present as this juice and bread comes. We come to him. He meets us to grant to us righteousness, to increase our faith, to love us and to cause us to love, to grant us peace, and to enable us to live in peace. God, that's our heart's desire. Please fill us, we pray.
In Jesus' name, amen.